Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the JMO Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Michaels, and our guest this week, we've got Mark Jones from Billings, Montana. This is Mark's first time on, but Mark is a good friend of the JMO crew. It's kind of a long time coming. His uh, Mark's a, a walleye tournament angler, and his tournament partner is uh, Ken Schmidt, a guy that we've had on on the show multiple times. We've talked about Reservoir Walleye, Sakakawiyo. We talk a lot about Montana walleye fishing uh, with partner Ken. But having Mark on, uh, I've heard this from multiple sources, that Mark's specialty, uh, amongst many things that he's good at, uh, trolling crankbaits. Uh, Mark is definitely a a troller. He's definitely a cranker. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. After we get to know Mark, which is a super fun time, uh, just getting to know Mark and and, and just kind of figuring out where his experience comes from. But Mark's been fishing uh, tournaments for a long, long time. He's been traveling around. He's fished a lot of new bodies of water in his lifetime and done very well. And this show is a, you know, uh, as complete as you can get in this amount of time, less than an hour, uh, the complete guide to trolling crankbaits on reservoirs for walleye. So uh, great, great episode here. Let's get into it with a Mark Jones. We're talking cranking walleyes. This episode of the JMO Podcast is brought to you by Montana's Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Department. As anglers, we have the ability to help protect the wonderful fishing opportunities in the state of Montana. For more information on regulations or AIS prevention in the state of Montana, head to the link that is in the description of this podcast. That is fwp.mt.gov backslash AIS getting to know you mark jones where are you from uh where well start way back uh, where did you come from uh you know where did you cut your teeth in fishing what are some of your earlier memories what are where do you feel like your fishing passion really uh, originated so my passion from fishing really came from uh the time i was six years old we my dad bought a cabin up on the stillwater river uh it was just a quarter mile from our house and at six years old I used to walk down there and my dad would take me down there and fish for trout and I'd fish for trout and fish for trout and I'd never catch any so um, this went on from the time I was six to eight I might be lucky to catch one or two fish and I stuck with it I had a passion for fishing um, even at that age of six years old and by the time I was 12 my dad told me not to bring one more fish back to the house so at 12 years old, kind of began my catch and release. Uh, definitely started as a trout fisherman, but I went from uh, a cabin in Absorky, living in Billings, to I actually moved up there my junior year of high school. I wanted to be closer to it, closer to the fishing. So I moved up there my junior year, ended up graduating from Absorky High School, did a lot of fishing on the Stillwater River, uh, and then from there i just continued to grow i started bait fishing i started throwing lures as a young kid probably when i was 13 i really got into fly fishing uh did a lot of fly fishing from the time i was 13 to 18 felt like i had become pretty accomplished at it and at age 22 i started guiding fly fishing trips on the bighorn river and i did that for the next 13 years so just a a lot of trips up and down the river uh just a passion for fishing but i have to tell you the guiding piece of it kind of took away from my fishing um i never got to fish anymore i was rowing a boat and i just i never got to experience that feeling i love of of catching fish so 
that's when I kind of migrated to walleye fishing. I uh, had two friends that went to Fort Peck and caught probably 10 or 12 walleye and just fell in love with it. Ended up jumping in a boat with them. Boating in a 12-foot aluminum boat, and I don't know if you can appreciate this if you know Fort Peck very well, but we went from Help Creek to Snow Creek in a 12-foot aluminum boat. Must have been a nice day out. <laughs> it wasn't. Oh, man. <laughs> there, probably, there probably should have been people out looking for us, but we boated down there in a 12-foot boat with a tent and spent the weekend in there and just caught a ton of walleyes, and I just fell in love with it, Taylor. Um, I found a new passion, something I wanted to do. You know, talking about your passion for fishing and where it originated, and every everybody evolves through personal experience. You're from, you know, the land of opportunity in terms of outdoor opportunity, and fly fishing is definitely a big deal. That had to have influenced you, though, right? You, you say you, you, you have a passion reborn in walleye fishing and all that, but you weren't just, sta- you know, starting at ground zero. What would be some of the things, just some of the faculties that you took away from you know a, a longtime guide uh, a, you know fly angling guide and, and just that part of your life like what were some of those mindsets some of those strategies just some of the 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 details that you have brought from that era into this era you know part part of the guiding piece of it is is it took me two years taylor to get used to the fact that it wasn't me fishing it was somebody else um and not everybody has the same talent level. So learning how to coach them into catching fish was, it was a whole new experience for me. Um, I don't know if I would have wanted to be in my boat for the first two years, but after that you learn how to teach people to catch fish and it's very rewarding. It is definitely rewarding. So as far as the guiding piece, um, I, I would say that's my biggest takeaway from that was the reward of others catching fish and having a great day. You get into walleye fishing. Let's kind of talk about that time in your life. You know, your first big time experience, very memorable for you. You guys took a treacherous ride in a small boat on a big (laughs) body of water. Looking back on it, that was probably not something you would do again. But what an awesome story. Tell me more about that and just the impact that it had on you. And just what were some of the series of events that have gotten you to where you are at today where... You know, you're a, you're a traveling tournament angler. Um, you've decorated at that. Um, and, uh, you know, just get me up to speed to like kind of how things are today between you and the walleyes. So we'll go back to that trip at Hell Creek down to Snow Creek. And we, we had a fabulous weekend. I ended up catching my first 30 inch walleye on my very first trip. Oh, of course. Walleye fishing, of course. Which will, which will, yeah, which will addict you quickly. Um, I had one Plano box that had some uh, spinner blades, some quick clevises, and some beads in it. I had some hooks. That's as much as I knew about walleye fishing at the time. Um, I had some bottom bouncers, and we drug them around and caught fish. And I thought, wow, this is easy. Nothing to this. So my partner at the time that I was fishing with is Kevin Harper, and and Kevin decided he wanted to uh, – get into the tournament world so we decided to sign up for the crooked creek tournament on fort peck uh that fall and it was a 75 team tournament and we finished an astonishing 73rd out of 75 teams and i'm not exactly sure how we beat two of them (laughs) (laughs) 
You weren't in that 12-foot <laughs> boat, were you? No, no. We had upgraded to a 17-foot crest liner by then. All right. So, I mean, we were we had a 17-foot crest liner with a 115 on it, and we thought we were something. But, uh, yeah, we, uh, we absolutely learned a ton about fishing. And I'll tell you one thing about this sport. People will help you along. Tournament anglers will help you along. And looking back on it right now, uh, Dan Majeski and Bill Legate at the time uh, were crankbaiters. I mean, at that tournament, they pulled cranks. And I remember seeing them go by us as we were jigging in an August tournament when we probably should have been cranking but didn't even know what they were. Seeing them go by with planer boards out, and I thought, what are those yellow things out there? I had no clue. had no clue what a planer board was or how to troll a crankbait. So they happened to be people that we knew. I uh, went back to Billings. I sat down with them, and they explained to me how crankbaiting worked. Had a good conversation. Uh, we signed up for the Hell Creek tournament next year and said, okay, we're going to figure this thing out. So we had been out a few times pre-fishing and, and doing some fishing and started catching fish, pulling cranks. Um, very first tournament we pulled them in was Hell Creek. Ended up eighth place after day one in a 150-team tournament. And we were just ecstatic, just ecstatic. Could not believe that that this happened. We were catching our fish deep in 25 feet of water, pulling deep diving cranks. Day two came. It was probably a 15, 18-mile-an-hour wind. And we were out there in 25 feet of water pulling cranks. And we determined that fish don't bite cranks when the wind blows. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, that was probably a few years ago. Like, you know, what else, what other kind of information did you have, right? It's like, not like we had all the technology then that we do now to, yeah. to know that and fish little did I even there. know that all those fish moved up shallow and I was still out in 25 feet of water. <laughs> so we pulled bottom bouncers out and went into the depths we were catching those, which was about 12 feet and ended up having a good day and finishing 12. But out of that, we determined that fish don't bite cranks when it's windy. I didn't put two and two together that we had changed depth. So it's, it's all a learning process as you go. Oh um, yeah. Oh but, yeah. But that was our addiction to crankbaits. It started in our second tournament. So, you know, what would you um, say out of that? You know, you, you talk about having that, that conversation, uh, you know, with, with your, those guys that you knew that, that were cranking in that first tournament. And it's like, what is it about crankbaits? You know, it, it, that you remember that might still be true or might still be part of your philosophy even today? You know, I still remember exactly which crankbait they were pulling. Um, they were pulling board shallow running the boat in eight to nine feet of water and board shallower than that. And they were pulling number five perch shad wraps. And it just, I had no idea what a number five perch shad wrap was until I went to buy one and I looked at the size of it and went, this doesn't make sense to me. Why would a big fish eat that small bait? Um, 20 years later, I can tell you I've caught more 30-inch walleye on number five shad wraps than, and number 200 reef runners than I have any other bait in my boxes. Talking about that that strategy and like, like you know, just learning what a crankbait does and 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 how it gets bit or what makes it effective, like what do you feel like were some of those 
some of those early on like light bulb moments of like, oh yeah, this is why we definitely have to learn this if we're going to be effective. Yeah, so the pieces of the puzzle that start coming together are they were eating perch because they were pulling outside of weed beds and the weed beds were full of perch. So that light bulb triggered um, the next year at the same tournament when we were pulling and started catching fish along the edge of weeds on perch. And I looked at my partner and I went, you know, these weeds are full of perch, I'll guarantee you. So we ended up making passes on these weed beds and doing real well. And that tournament uh, ended up third place, I think, in our third year of it. So um, it's just a matter of putting that forage fish that they're keying on into a crankbait. And then you got to get into the action of it. Is it the right action? Um, I I hate to say it, man, you got to own a lot of crankbaits, a lot of crankbaits. As you were grooming yourself as a tournament angler and you kind of got bit by that bug, was it the competition and trying to get a high finish? Or, you know, it sounds like you'd really enjoyed the learning and the nuancing and that sort of thing. Like, talk me through some of those memories and just kind of your, you know, just what you took away from, you know, say like your first three to five seasons as a tournament angler, like, you know, just just all the learning and just what made tournament angling so important to you that it was you were going to keep doing it yeah and i think you hit it right on the head it's the why the why each fish hit is what kept me going uh kept me learning so i would i would watch bottom to see if it was soft or hard i would watch for weed beds i would watch for depth um i would watch everything that was happening every fish we caught so you start putting a pattern together and those are the things that keep me going to this day um Ken and I have fished a ton of tournaments together over the last 10 years, and we've kind of moved from Fort Peck, our home water, which we're very comfortable fishing, uh, into some lakes that we haven't fished sections of Sakakawea. So this is only our second year of doing Van Hook, and we did Dakota Waters last year, which was totally new water to us. And it's part of that wanting to learn new areas and learning new fish populations and what triggers fish and and just that continual growth and learning about it, the sport. Yeah, man. To cover ground, talking about fishing, I, you know, there's definitely there's amongst other things you mark definitely have a, a lot of people's respect talking about this trolling, talking about this crankbait trolling. And we've already we've already laid down a bunch of groundwork in this, but I really want us to spend the rest of this show talking about what it is that you really appreciate, um, you know, about trolling cranks throughout the seasons. And so the way I'll say it this, I, I don't have any other notes for this. So this is, we're winging this completely, but Perfect. I just want you, I want to know what, is the most exciting scenario maybe it's a a story from your past or just we can just build up a hypothetical that really depicts what it is you know the way you would talk about trolling cranks what is like your the scenario that you could most easily break down element by element category by category to know that pulling cranks is just the way to go for you so probably my favorite time period to crank is late July all the way through September, October is my favorite time. Uh, Mainly because those fish tend to move more out onto flats, uh, break lines, long break lines. They scatter, and they're usually not congregated very well. And now if you get a wind or something, they may congregate somewhere, but a lot of times these fish are scattered. 
when you have scattered fish and you can run at 2.2 to 2.73 miles an hour, you just give yourself a better chance covering more water. I like the cranks because it doesn't matter if they're in two feet of water or 30 feet of water, I can crank them. Um, crankbaits are very versatile as far as covering depth ranges. Um, my personal favorite, I still love it to this day, is is just flatline trolling with fireline and two boards out the side. And I can cover water columns. If I put the boat in 10 feet of water, I can cover 12 feet on the outside of the boat, 10 feet on the inside rod of the boat. I can cover five feet with the inside board and I can cover out to 15, 20 feet with that outside board. So I, I like the spread. It's gonna tell you where the fish are and you're covering a lot of water. So that's probably my favorite way to crank. Um, but there are tournaments in, in April that I've cranked down in Chamberlain, South Dakota, down on Lake Sharp. Uh, some of those more river systems with current, um, usually those are deeper fish. Those are lead core fish when we start talking uh, a lot of the river system fish. So down on those systems, um, I mean, I, I'm going to say probably 90% of my first 10 years of tournament fishing was cranking. 90% of the time we were cranking and it, it was all had to do with the confidence level of, I thought that's how I could catch fish. Um, didn't have a ton of experience in, in live bait rigging. I had done quite a bit of jigging, but jigging's a, a bite that only comes around tournament fishing at certain times of the year. So um, we just had done a lot of cranking. Dan Majeski is who I fished with and Kevin Harper, and I learned most of what I know from Dan. Um, did all my out-of-state tournaments with him, did all my in-state tournaments with Kevin at the time. And we were just cranking machines. We just put them down and took off. Um, a lot of days we'd cover 20, 30 miles of shoreline. And just, you know, that week of pre-fishing for tournaments, you can cover pretty much the whole boundary if you crank every day. The fishing opportunities across the state of Montana are phenomenal. If you're from there or you've already been there a bunch to experience it, you know just how special these opportunities are. If you haven't, fishing out west should absolutely be on your bucket list. But aquatic invasive species like zebra mussels and Eurasian water milfoil can harm recreational opportunities. As boaters, as anglers, we have the ability to help protect Montana's waters by cleaning all mud, plants and debris off our boat, recreational equipment, and fishing gear before we leave any access sites. Drain the water from your motor, your live well, your bilges, and allow your boat and equipment time to dry before your next outing. No matter what watercraft you use, please, if you're traveling in the state of Montana, stop at all inspection stations. Together, we can protect Montana's waters. Visit the link in the description of this podcast for more information. That's fwp.mt. .gov backslash AIS. You know, how much of that confidence, how much of that, uh, you know, just just th that comfort level with pulling cranks is from the ground that you cover? I mean, do you feel like you start to get a rash and get real itchy when people start talking about bait or people start pulling out jig rods? Like, because you just don't feel like you're covering enough water. Talk about, you know, just like how important it is in those situations to cover all that water. And then, you know, what are those situations where 
you do dial in a zone or do dial in an area and then maybe have to make a decision to maybe switch up your presentation yeah so when when we're pre-fishing for a tournament usually i use a different icon especially back then i used a different icon for anything over on fort pack anything over 23 inches so as you look through you don't remember everything during the day so a lot of times you need to go back and look at night and see where your fish are coming from um i can go back to one gov cup that we were pulling cranks and when I went back and looked, every big fish came on the same spot of every point that we hit. And they were scattered a long ways in between. So with two days left to pre-fish, the question became, are we better off um, putting bouncers down, uh, live baiting over the top of them, and just hitting those spots of those points? So we ended up going back, trying that, and sure enough, it produced. So you talk about being willing to transition, um, using cranks as a search and then narrowing down that focus to certain parts of certain points, uh, it's very effective. You know, like you said, when you're covering shoreline, you just put the boat in 10, 12 feet of water and you put those boards out, especially in states where you can have multiple lines. You do, Everybody does this or figure this out where you're covering different depths. How often when you're cranking do you feel like, you know, you start out that way? You're trying to put a pattern together, but by the end of the day, you've got it narrowed down and you're just pulling on that contour that's working or do you feel like when you're cranking effectively you're just always trying to cover you know those depth ranges because that just the fish can be anywhere like talk me through a little bit of that over the course of a day so through the course of the day i mean obviously they're the fish are going to tell you where they're at if i if i'm pulling boards and everything's coming behind the boat um, in eight to 10 feet of water, then I'm going to figure out a way to pull four right out of the boat. I'll, I'll get rid of the boards and pull right out of the boat. Um, a lot of tournament days, you're better off not having boards out, just getting through other anglers and, and being able to fish everything efficiently. So, but yeah, you want to pay attention to what's going on. I will say one thing, Fort Peck is a different body of water when it comes to cranking. You will catch fish in multiple depth ranges all day long, every day. I, I don't have very many trips where I'm not covering multiple depth ranges there. Talk to me about what makes a big selection of crankbaits. Like which ones do you got to have um, to to really have what you need? So action to me is number one. Color is is usually secondary. If I can dial in an action that is triggering fish, then I'll try to dial in a color. Um, by far, I, I mean, that's where I start. So usually when I start pulling cranks, we get out there in the morning, I've got four different crankbaits out. I'll guarantee a different action on every rod. Um, some may have rattles, some may not have rattles. Uh, some may be a real tight action. Some might be a little wider wobbling action. And a lot of that depends on time of the year and how active your fish are also. So, I mean, if we're in the spring of the year and I'm cranking um, deep fish and they're not real active, there's pretty good odds I'm probably going to have something like a, a deep husky jerk on, you know, just something that maybe a rapala and I may snap weight it down, just a floater, uh, just something with a real subtle action to it that's not really going to offend any fish going by. Usually you don't want rattles in those rigs. So I try to stay away from rattles on cold water fish. But by the time you get to summer, you want something. I mean, if I had to, to go out and just buy some crankbaits and I was just starting, shad wraps, 
flicker shads um with and honestly my favorite crankbait is a uh, reef runner 200 that little 200 uh rip shad is one of my favorite crankbaits between those three and, and then throw in a uh a, a flicker minnow with it too you know for these smelt based populations those those four cranks will get you into a lot of fish whether it's a tournament situation or not like what is like the most efficient and effective setup in your boat so i uh i reel all, all my flatline rods have got fireline on them i am a fireline guy i know there's a lot of guys that pull mono and do very well with it i pull fireline for a couple very specific reasons i can see my crank working as I'm pulling it, I want to be able to see the action of the crank. I want to make sure it's not weeded up. Um, I want to be able to see everything. When I'm flatline trolling and shallow, there's pretty good odds there's weeds. About 80% of the time, I can clear those weeds with fireline by giving it a really good hard rip. So I'm able to keep my lines in the water and be more efficient by keeping everything fishing all the time. Um, that's my main reason for pulling fireline. If you're going to pull fireline, you need to have rods that will absorb that initial bite. If you're doing 2.5 to 3 miles an hour when they hit it, something has to give else it's going to tear right out of their mouth. So I use a medium weight rod. Uh, Some of them are fiberglass still. Some of them are composite. But I want that rod to bend all the way down to the middle of the rod when I'm cranking. I use probably lighter rods for cranking than 90% of the people out there do. But I want to be able to, you know, if I have a 30 inch fish hit a crankbait, I want it to be able to, to take that rod back and absorb that initial hit. And then as you're fighting the fish, you get that, you get that absorption. You have your drag set properly by then. You shouldn't have to worry about it. You can pretty much reel through anything and it just keep reeling. I always told my kids when I have them out there and we're cranking, just keep reeling. I've got the drag set where we need it. So they just keep reeling and, and 30 inches come right up to the boat, no problem. Um, but that's my main main reason for, if you're using Fireline, make sure you have a rod that'll take that impact. And then <clears throat> shallow water trolling, um, make sure you've got good planer boards, make sure you've got good clips on them, else you'll be changing chasing planer boards the entire day so my recommendation with planer boards whatever style you decide to use i like to change out the clips on it to an or18 uh offshore planer board snap it's it saves you from chasing down planer boards in the wind a whole lot that would be my high recommendation for that so as you move out let's break this down into shallow fishing midsection and deep fishing So as we move out from the shallows, um, get into that 15 to 20 foot range, I'll usually go to lead line. I like to be able to present some smaller baits and some larger baits. I may mix it up from there. And if I'm running large enough baits, uh, number nine shad wrap, I can take down 18 to 19 foot on fire line. I may run a bigger bait on fire line and a couple of lead cores in that depth range. Um, Just to get them down there. One other thing I want to mention, summertime trolling guys, don't worry about getting your bait down to the bottom. Know where bottom's at, but bring it up. Those fish will chase. 
I like to run my cranks in the summer, even shallow water trolling in eight feet. I like them three feet off the bottom. Um, if you go back to spring of the year, I like them within six, eight inches of the bottom in that cold water period. So as you move out, the same thing applies summertime. You want to keep them up. Those fish are chasing. They're looking up. They're looking for bait fish. So keep those crankbaits up. I've learned this lesson extremely hard. Uh, learned it in a tournament over at Glendo in Wyoming. And we had a boat pulling next to us. We ended up, you know, we did good. We were catching fish. Didn't really have any reason to, to lift our baits up. We were catching a lot of fish. Well, it turns out the bigger fish were closer to the top of the water. They were running shallow shad wraps with 25 feet of line out over 16 feet of water. Oh, wow. Yeah, but it's an emerald shiner base uh, forage, and those emerald shiners, they like to get right up on top of the water, I've learned throughout the years. So um, don't be afraid to pull things high. But as we move out into that that lead core section, summertime, same rules are going to apply. We're going to try to keep those baits two to three feet off the bottom. We're going to let them tick bottom. We're going to bring them up. And then uh, just pull. Lead core is very speed sensitive. You want to be aware of that. So, I mean, if if you're at 2.2 miles an hour and you kick it up to 2.5, you're going to raise those baits a foot or two with lead core. So you want to be conscious of your speed when you're pulling lead core and you get your line set. Um, don't be afraid to go back, let line out, reel line in. Every time you move that bait, you increase your odds, I think, of catching fish. Just that stop and go action. And, and then when I move out to the deeper sections, a lot I'll either run four snap weights or I'll run two lead cores from, from 25 feet out. Uh, either run snap weights on all or I'll run two lead cores and two snaps. And don't be afraid to put some weight on there when you're snap weighting. My average weight for running out there is probably six ounces. And if I get real deep, I'll pull eight ounces of lead. Jeepers. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty aggressive. What would you say? Do you feel like you kind of like, you know, learned that over time in different situations? I mean, talk me through that. Cause I don't think a lot of guys are probably thinking, you know, snap weighting, you know, six to eight ounces. I mean, most everybody's probably got, you know, maybe even, uh, might be hard for some people to find a four ouncer in their box a lot of three and two ounces stuff exactly yeah i uh i just happened to fish with a gentleman out of south dakota for a few tournaments on lake oahe when those fish will tend to to get deep you know 30 to 50 feet sometimes over there depending on the thermocline and i really learned my snap weight and stuff from shannon when we were running snap weights over there and he ran heavy weights, he got them down and got them up quick. Um, he, he actually ran them off a three-way swivel with only a six foot leader behind him. Is that, is that the real advantage to a heavier weight is just the having less equipment out the back, you know, below the boat, uh, it just as an efficiency, or do you feel like, um, you know, above, above, above and beyond that, that there's some application there. No, I absolutely believe it's all about efficiency. It's about getting things up and down quick. Um, it's about line angle. You can put a two ounce snap weight on and it will amaze you how far back that goes before you ever hit bottom. It almost creates more of a drag, almost like a heavier line would and lifts it up at times. So you need some weight on it to get it down. 
at, at a decent angle. With six ounces of weight, I'm still at a 45-degree angle out the back yeah, in, in yeah, 30 yeah. feet of water. Yeah, so it, it takes more weight, I believe, than people are, are willing to admit. Oh, yeah, man, just because you almost feel like you're salmon fishing or something when you got like exactly. eight ounces down there. But if it's if it does make you more efficient, I would say that's like probably 50-plus percent of my conversations on this podcast are really just me trying to figure out what people's efficiencies are so that I can try to adopt them because I think efficiency is one of the biggest things that the average angler is leaving on the table. You know, just, just being more efficient. Like some people probably don't need to know about another lure. They probably know enough about a few lures that they've already got. They probably already know enough about a few spots that they fish but people's efficiencies out there is just what boggles my mind, uh, you know, just in my own learning curve, just realizing Absolutely. the efficiencies and just the the spectrum of things that, you know, guys like yourself are, are learning as you go, teaching yourselves and, and, and paying that tuition and just having that open mind. But, you know, that being said, another reflection question, what would you say in your career as a cranker as a troller looking back what are some of the philosophies from way early that you definitely still have today or is a better question or a better answer like what are some things that you have evolved what are some things that you know you've learned as of recently that are just a big deal to you and have made you a better uh, troller I mean you know talk to me a little bit about that with the kind of that self-reflection I you know, I looking back, um, when I started pulling crankbaits, it was put some lines out the side. I had no no depth in mind. I let out 150 feet of line on each one of them and went. And it was amazing to me that when we crossed points and they dug bottom is when we caught our fish. So basically, I was blind trolling the whole time, um, just basically wandering around <laughs> And, and picking up fish when I hit the right depth zones. Over the years, we've learned to uh, adapt, you know, precision trolling. When that came out, that, that was a big deal. How much line to let out, what depth they were at. Um, we all had the Bible, and then we all got the Bible on our phone. And uh, it, it just evolved that way. But, um, you know, probably the biggest thing I learned pulling cranks is pay attention to the forage base that you have available for the walleye in that lake because that's going to determine location of your fish too. Um, Cisco's on Fort Peck, Emerald Shiner's on Boisin, Smelt on uh, Lake Sakakawea. You know, where are they at certain times of year? Where are you marking your bait? Because where the bait is is where the fish will be. Um, I think probably the best example of learning I can give you is is a fish in Boisin Reservoir in Emerald Shiner Lake. Um, We had some cottonwood trees that came up about 20 feet below the water, over 70 feet of water that we had pulled for years. We always caught fish in them. And we were out there fishing one day and absolutely could not buy a fish, could not find them. And we ended up raising up one of the planter board rods and then we raised it up again and then we raised it up again. And pretty soon we had it five feet below the water, over 70 feet of water. And you couldn't, you couldn't, get that board out there all the way without it getting hit. 
the walleyes were just stacked five feet down over seven, 70 feet. Oh man. Were they, so, were they still on them? Were they still kind of like above them cottonwood trees? They were still above the cottonwoods, but they had slid up because the bait had slid up. Yeah. So, and you know, this is back in the days before side imaging, before uh, live target, <laughs> before any of the live scope, you know, way before that. So we didn't have any way to see those fish back then other than to fish for them. I think that is that is unbelievable because, you know, more context than that even is like you're talking about a time and a place and an era of walleye fishing in this country where it was ultimately believed that you, you know, 99% of walleye fishing had to happen within six inches of the bottom at 0.2 miles an hour with a leech or a nightcrawler. Exactly. You become desperate and you start searching and looking. And honestly, this the tale of Glendo Reservoir of the guys raising up so high was a learning curve for me because I would have never done it if I hadn't heard that story from them. So something I had heard from other anglers caused me to do that. Man, yeah, I, I just, I think that's awesome. And, you know, one other thing that you kind of, mentioned that I think is so true and a lot of people will relate to this is that a lot of pulling cranks or even casting cranks for that matter bottom contact is such a historically has been like such a trigger in a lot of situations a lot of places different different patterns but man I've just heard so many stories in my lifetime of how you know, guys were just really proud of themselves that they were getting bit because they were just plowing cranks, you know, through the gravel or they were making bottom yep. contact with the rocks or, you know, they had that all that bottom contact figured out. I think that that's a relatively new concept to get your to be fishing above bottom, to be fishing it three is. feet above bottom. You know, that's that's not even that's just any time of open water pulling cranks any time of year. I think. The suspended bite, you know, anybody that's been onto it hasn't been talking about it. They've kind of had it as their own secret. I think that that's a very real relative to the, you know, looking back on time and history and walleye fishing, whether it's just, you know, your recreational anglers like myself, the amateurs amateur or tournament angling. I I think, you know, that trolling that, um, you know, you still got to have some intentions with it. You still got to kind of have an idea of what you're trying to accomplish. I think that's true. I think that's important and have a few details figured out. But now, you know, you've got some a few things figured out. You've got you've nuanced some trolling in some places that you've been over time. Are there some situations, whether it's the time of year, the pattern, like are there are there some certain places that you'll go at a time of year when you just know you you're going to be making bottom contact or, or there's like a pattern that, or, or there are places that you know you're probably not going to let a crankbait get very close to bottom. Like, talk me through that. Absolutely. That goes back to those river systems uh, that I have fished personally. Chamberlain, South Dakota on Lake Francis Case, Lake Sharp, those two over there. Spring of the year, I've actually done quite a few tournaments over there. Um, those are definite. You have to maintain bottom contact. Um, within six inches of the bottom or you're just not getting bit so it's that time of the year where those fish they're post-spawn fish late april um, they're sitting out there just kind of sulking relaxing recouping uh, the bigger females have just spawned the males a lot of them are still shallow some of them are starting to push a little deeper but everything seems to be very bottom oriented so um, i work anybody that says pulling crankbaits is boring 
has never pulled crankbaits with me because I will work rods all day long. I let line out, I touch bottom, I reel them up, one crank, two cranks. Touch bottom, reel them up, crank. And I go rod to rod to rod to rod to rod the whole day. So I make sure that time of the year that my baits are running within six inches of the bottom. We probably have time to maybe maybe tell another story, another learning experience, or just something important that you want to talk about if there's something like that before we close this thing out, man. Like what is one more topic or another story that we just got to have? So let's talk about reservoir fishing because I love the reservoirs. I love the whole Missouri River system, but I, I really enjoy Fort Peck, Lake Oahe, and Sakakawea. Those are three of my favorite places to fish. And as we talk about pulling crankbaits, for some reason, what I've learned throughout the years, the, the river end where it comes in to mid-lake is always your best cranking. Um, dam ends of every one of those can get tougher. Lake Oahe is probably the best. Sakakawea and Fort Peck, they're very, very structured down on the, on the dam ends of the lake. Uh, a lot of long points. Fish tend to congregate more. Um, where that river channel comes in, you get long runs. You get those one, two-mile runs where those fish will lay on those edges, and you can actually get cranks out and cover some water where there's fish. So if I had something to share, it would be on reservoir fishing and that um, if you're going to start cranking, start mid-reservoir, a Hell Creek all the way down to Crooked Creek on Fort Peck or, you know, that Newtown area. Um, of Sakakawea is really good and the Mobridge area of Lake Oahe is phenomenal crankbaiting and it starts early spring I fished tournaments in May on Oahe done well cranking and I fished tournaments in July there and have done well cranking so um, it, it kind of runs throughout the year for some reason on that end of the reservoir phenomenal Mark, you, you knocked it out of the park and you know like you mentioned it's, pulling cranks is definitely one of those things you know, if in walleye fishing that you can do, especially on a Western reservoir where we have some more fish, it's definitely something that you do with the kids. You know, it's something that because it's, you know, the lines go out, the rod holders kind of get the bites for you usually. And, but there's a total nuance to it. There's a ton of talking and learning that can happen in the boat. It's, it's not boring, you know, for, for to have young people in the boat, um, you know, when you're doing this, cause there's all kinds of stuff to talk about. You're always picking a new cool looking crankbait out of the box to put on another line and try out. And there's just a lot to it. And a lot of times you catch a lot of fish and that's fun too. And, you know, it's definitely, you know, something that, you know, once, once uh, you figure out how to get that rod out of the rod holder without giving it slack and letting the fish fall off, you know, it, it's definitely something that, you know, young people, can be involved in, um, you know, versus all these conversations about forward sonar and making the perfect cast, you know, to land on a fish's head, you know, that some of that really nuancey stuff nowadays that is kind of, you know, it it doesn't cater to as many people. It doesn't have as much broad appeal, but pulling cranks is something that absolutely, uh, you ought to be looking at if you fish walleyes anywhere in the, anywhere where there's walleyes. You know, it is absolutely a fantastic way for kids to catch fish. Yeah. Yep. I think that, uh, I just like being able to say that, but anyways, Mark, honestly, we should continue to talk for another three to four hours, but (laughs) I try to keep these things at just the right amount of length, you know, that, uh, we leave them wanting more. So that being said, 
let's wrap this thing up. Uh, if people listen to this and maybe they have questions that they want you to elaborate on a certain topic, maybe they want to reach out to you or or follow along on your social medias. What what can you promote? What uh, you know, whether it's content or uh, your socials or just anything that you want to throw out there, maybe a sponsor or something like that. Um, let us know where people can find you, and we'll sign it off that way. So I'm on Facebook. Um, is my main social media that I use. So if anybody wants to contact me on say, Facebook, I am friends with a ton of walleye fishermen on there, and we communicate all the time. Um, I, I am happy to help anybody become a better fisherman. There was so many people that helped me uh, to get to where I am today that I would be happy to, to pay it forward and, and to help anybody I can. Walleye fishing is a super humbling sport. Um, about the time you think you have it figured out, they slap you right in the face. So um, don't get discouraged. Stick with it. I'd like to give a shout out to all the people that have helped me along the way. Uh, Ken Schmidt, my partner now, has made me a way better live bait fisherman and jig fisherman than I ever was before. So I'd like to thank him for that. And I'd like to give one shout out to our major sponsor, Shields. Uh, they do a lot for us, and it's it's a great place. It's an employee-owned store, and I'll tell you what, the knowledge of the people that they have working in there, those people can really help you become better fishermen too. Right on, man, right on. All right, well, we'll be in touch, Mark. Thanks again. All right, Taylor. As anglers, we have the ability to help protect the wonderful fishing opportunities in the state of Montana. For more information on regulations or AIS prevention, In the state of Montana, head to the link that is in the description of this podcast. That is fwp.mt.gov backslash AIS.